When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to go where culture is, but like New York, I raise such or at least snob. Connecticut or New Hampshire, well, where writers live in the get woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom! You can't even pass your driver's test. Because you wouldn't let me practice The way enough. that you work, or the, or the way that you don't work, you're not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Ladybird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Ladybird like Christine. you said you would. Just, you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College, and then to jail, and then back to City College, and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Represent. I'm Ayesha Harris, your host, and we took a brief hiatus last week, but we're back with an especially exciting episode that I promise you all will really enjoy. In a bit, you'll hear my conversation with the one and only Greta Gerwig, perhaps best known for co-writing and starring in the indie darling Frances Ha, and who's now picking up some major award season steam for her critically acclaimed directorial debut, Lady Bird. I can't wait for y'all to hear the conversation. It was really, really fun and fascinating. But first, I know everyone's been talking about Spike Lee's Netflix update of She's Gotta Have It, and we couldn't not talk about it here, too. So if you heard me on Slate's Culture Gabfest last week, you probably know a bit about how I feel about the show. The short answer is, I really liked it. But as with pretty much everything Spike has ever done, the results of his return to the characters he brought to screens in his feature debut 31 years ago have proven polarizing to audiences. Some people love it, others hate it, and it's safe to say that a friend of mine and senior editor over at Mike.com, Erin Evans, falls into the latter camp. Her review of the show concludes that, quote, the series will put you to sleep before the first episode's over. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I figured we should have a spirited debate about She's Gotta Have It because I liked it, you didn't. And welcome Let's to do this. Yeah. <laughs> welcome to the show, Erin. Thank you so much, Aisha, for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, so before we get into your piece, uh, I, I do want to ask you sort of what was your um, what was your take on the original film and like what's your relationship to the original film? Um, so I saw the original film probably 10 years ago now. I was like 21. Yeah, same. Um, yeah. In college at Howard and you know, that's where I watched a lot of first, uh, Spike Lee's films for the first time. I guess I should say Spike Lee's joints <laughs> for the first time. And for me growing up, I, you know, I grew up in the church, like feeling like a black woman who could speak freely about her own sexuality and juggling multiple men. Like that was a new concept for me just in general. So I appreciated the film. Um, and then... 
years later after graduating, I remember reading critiques about it. Um, one of my colleagues, former colleagues at The Root, Teresa Wiltz, has written extensively about Spike's woman problem. And a lot of critics have talked about that. And that allowed me to look at it through another lens. I think now that we're in this period where there's a lot of shows that have women who are sexually free and have all these labels, but that aren't labels because they don't necessarily identify with them. Yeah, like Insecure is is one. Um, I'm trying to think of others with black women, especially. even in the 90s, like looking back at like right. living single or yeah. looking at um, girlfriends, girlfriends and, the, and, the and odds, like yeah. Lynn and having how she was so free and open. Yeah. Um, and I had friends in college who were like that, too, just open. And it just opened me up to this new world. And years later in 2017, to see that a reboot is happening, I was very anxious mm-hmm. to see how fresh it would feel and see how Spike Lee would kind of come at it from a different way since he was heavily critiqued on several aspects of that film. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, So it sounds like you were more or less disappointed by what transpires (laughs) over those 10 episodes. Aisha, to say the least. Did you watch watch the whole thing? I can't remember. I watched the whole thing. So that was like torture for you then. It was very painful. (laughs) Um, I think I was was actually sitting at work next to one of my colleagues watching it Mm -hmm. and and like probably every 10 minutes, I would take off my headphones like, oh, I can't believe this is what this is. This is. Yeah. Um, several of the storylines, while I thought were um, apt adaptations or updates for 2017 Brooklyn and Fort Greene and what, yeah. we look, what we look like today were great. I also felt like it was still stuck in 1986 in so many ways. Yes. So, I mean... Uh, you, you talk about it in your piece, um, but I mean, it seems like one of the like one of the reasons you feel that way is because of the fact that Spike directed every episode. He didn't write every episode. He he wrote the the book. He bookended it. He yes. wrote the first episode and the, and the last episode, and then he brought in a bunch of other writers, including his brother Sinke Lee, as well as Lynn Nottage, the Pulitzer Prize winning dramatist. Um, he she, he even had um. Rada Blank. Uh, he, he's had several women. I think at least half of the the writers are women. Yep. But you still felt as though his directing was was part of like a huge part of the problem, for sure. Like <laughs> in in what way? Because I, so I think I actually agree with you to some extent. I I do think that um, when it comes to Spike, some of his aesthetic touches some of his his aesthetic touches could be a bit much in the context of like a 10 episode series as opposed to like a compact two-hour movie um and i can think of some episodes that i really like stood out to me it's like this is not it's remind me girl (laughs) okay so i think my least favorite episode was probably the one that was all about the education system. So this this episode, I think it's like the fifth one, like it's right in the middle. And it's Jamie, who is one of her, one of Nola's, oh shit, we didn't even talk about who Nola is. We got into it. Yeah, we did get into it. <laughs> so before before I talk about my least favorite episode, we should probably let people know in case they like haven't, like aren't aware, uh, which if you're not, you should know, get right, um, that, it's centered around both the the movie and the show are centered around Nola Darling, this like 
freewheeling 20-something-year-old woman living in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. Uh, the original was played by uh, Tracy Camilla Johns. Here it's played by DeWanda Wise. And she juggles three paramours um, who each like are very distinct from one another. Um, there's Mars Blackman uh, and the original played by Spike Lee. Here it's played by Anthony Ramos. If if you're a Hamilton fan, you know who he is. Um, and then you, she also has her straight-laced lover, Jamie, who's a bit older, and um, Greer, who's like this beautiful, gorgeous model, self-like, self-centered. So annoying. So self, <laughs> self-absorbed. <laughs> and she juggles all three of them, as well as in the series, she also has Opal, an old flame who is a woman. So she's she considers herself pansexual, blah, 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 but somehow isn't into labels, even though she calls herself pansexual. So to say all that, my least favorite episode has to do with, in part with Jamie, his storyline. It diverges. We see, we find out that he's married, um, spoiler, and he's he's estranged from his wife, but they have a kid together and their kid is like, I, I'm pretty sure the wife is supposed to be like a very light skinned or maybe yes. biracial and his kid is also very light skinned. And anyway, he goes to this prep, Tony prep school and he is like, he does this video where <laughs> this video with his mostly white friends where they're like rapping and they're saying the N word and like the parents, Jamie and his wife are like very like, oh my God, you can't say the N word, blah, blah, blah. And, and funny enough, the white principal or the white headmaster or whatever is just like well we asked them to express themselves like it's like a reverse like i guess it's supposed to be a comment on how we've gone from like we're in this weird post-racial but not post-racial world or whatever right anyway the scenes just felt so didactic and Mm -hmm. like put upon and they were having all these convert like very heavy conversations about these topics like it felt very like we're going to talk about these topics right. and there's that other storyline that parallels it where one of Nola's many side hustles she's an artist but like she has many side hustles and one of them is teaching um, art to kids and there's this one girl like basically she's talking about stereotypes and whatnot and so she like name checks Nikki Minaj and like some other like Maybe Black China. I don't know. But anyway, it's like the, the, the girl the girl at one point says. Don't you know that I know that girls like Nicki Minaj and Amber Rose are playing a role? I'm not stupid. Men call them sluts, hoes, every dirty thing you can name. Yet Nicki and Amber have damn near 75 million followers on Instagram combined. Being a hoe can be a great business. <laughs> And then she like walks out the classroom like, I'm so smart. Yeah, that was my that to me, that was like where it got grading. Right. And I agree 100 percent. Those were the ones where I'm like, this is what feels like Spike Lee, like knocking us over the head with this like message moment. (laughs) Like this is a topic we that comes up in the news that comes up in this world that we live in. And it's like. I'm paying it. He's like, I'm paying attention. So I'm like putting this thing in there instead of making it seem, I don't know, just native to the storytelling of of the actual TV series. Right. And those little like moments just kind of thud. You know, one thing I liked about that I love about Insecure is you see those moments of like being on Tinder and like having those conversations and texts and all that. Mm -hmm. It's just very interwoven in how we tell stories and how we communicate naturally 
the whole TV series to me felt forced in this weird way. Well, there are like lots of hashtags. I mean, yes. one of the things that happens a lot is like, um, and I remember this also being the case with Chirac, which is something that I, a movie I actually really liked, uh, I think more than a lot of people did. But with Chirac, it was like there were all these sensory things happening at once, like on the screen. There was there was texting, there was hashtags, there was like all this stuff happening on the screen. And that happens a lot in Do the or not in Do the Right Thing. <laughs> and and <laughs> she's got to have it. The new she's got to have it, um, which I can I can see being uh, annoying at the same time, like, I don't know. I feel like, yes, like, there there, there are definitely moments that I think that um, the directing kind of overtakes whatever the story is supposed to tell. Um, and even the storyline with uh, Shamika, her friend, who <laughs> I kept I kept having flashbacks to the Unpretty video by TLC. <laughs> you know the yes. moment where, like, uh, Chili is like in the in the <laughs> surgery room, and they pull like they show the graphic like pulling yes. out of the the earth. They're like I don't know what's happening, but you see like the silicone just like drop in slow motion and being like ripped from her right. body. I'm like, do we really have to watch 37 seconds of her getting these butt injections? Yes. And like this is very painful. The and... illegal butt injections that she gets by this like strange woman who is doing this out of a hotel room, right, out of a seedy motel. Where she can't even tell, like, her friend and her family that she's, like, actually doing this because she's so ashamed of this, like, moment where she's, like, I'm trying to get a bigger butt because I can be on stage. Even though the dancers that were on the stage really, to me, didn't have that big of butts anyway. So, like, like what are, what are we trying thing. to prove? <laughs> I thought the same thing. I was, like, slightly confused. I was, like, they were all pretty skinny. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, they had some, some, some boobs or whatever. But, um, I mean, at the same time, I appreciated her character because yes. I like the fact that, you know, even Insecure, which I love and I think is, you know, if you're, it's way more, it's it's a way just better at handling, handling yes. these things, I think. Um, but even Insecure, like up until, I mean, they had Tasha, um, who was a great character, but like she didn't really come to the forefront until the second season right. and we didn't really see anything about her. So I like that they had like a, I don't know, maybe hood is the wrong term but like super like way more regular yes <laughs> regular chick yeah like so many of us are as opposed to just like we're all like even nola even though she's hustling she right. still lives in her godmother's brownstone yes. and paying way less rent than what her godmother could get so like she's just living the dream living the dream yeah she i don't think once got on the subway during the whole tv series um, now that I think of, oh my god, this is like Sex in the City. They never got on the subway on Sex in the City. I didn't even think about that. Um, she does bike. She did bike everywhere though. But she also got in a lot of cabs, and she was always broke. So I was always like, True. I mean, that's kind True. of relatable for me personally. <laughs> um, getting in cabs when you're broke, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, I did like Shemeka's character a lot, and I wish that her storyline hadn't been kind of relegated to this butt enhancement thing. I would have loved seeing more of her in, yeah. in each episode. Because as I said in the piece, like I thought that Nola's relationships with her girlfriends were way more interesting oh, and, yeah. and worth exploring than Jamie Greer and Mars, who I found very annoying and also triggering as a single black woman and living in Brooklyn today. I'm like... <laughs> These are the jokers that I see on Tinder. And I just, 
I don't want to live this on a TV series that I wanted to enjoy, but just ultimately did not at all. I do wonder if a fundamental issue with the series or with like the story that Spike originally told is just that like, is it realistic that someone like Nola would ever be into all three of these men? Like, even if it's just as casual dating, it's like, I I can maybe see Jamie, like I have lots of girlfriends who have dated older men and, you know, like kind of straight lace, uptight, super not that interesting. Yes. Uh, But like Mars? (laughs) And I love Anthony Ramos. I I loved his portrayal of Mars. I thought it, I thought, for the most part, I thought the performances were fine. Yeah. It was just the storylines, but I agree. Like, the three of them were so different. And even in Nola's interactions with them, where she gets kind of fed up with them and she ends it, I'm just like, girl, just leave them alone and like focus on your friends or focus on Opal, who I thought um, them, you know, going more into her life and, and their relationship more deeply in the TV series than they did in the original film was, I thought it was great. Well, I in thought, the original, she was like a predator, the lesbian character, Opal. Oh, God. Was you she? don't remember that? Yeah. So I I rewatched the original oh. right before we're di- digging into this. The original Opal shows up in like two or three scenes and each time she's like, Jamie's there and they have this like he's like I can't believe you're here and then right. she like tries to she's like there's this whole like you're you're trying to come on to my girl and she's I do like remember that yeah and then there's a scene where she kind of pets Nola and is like you know I'm here for you and Nola's just like come on now I'm not I'm not into this at all but it's like super like yeah devious in a way that like I'm sure Spike has he's Obviously, for this show, he's he's over. He's like totally course correcting, and here yes. she's like probably the best written character. Yes, like we we haven't really seen lesbian characters. Yes, um, and especially not ones that have been portrayed as nuanced as she is here. Right. So it's nice to see that, and you know they've obviously like most TV series they're talking about a second season. It seems like the way it ends, they're opening the door for that to become more of a central part of the show, which. If that's the case, then I am definitely all in for that. I would love to see what happens with that. Well, I I think I'll definitely tune into a second season if if it happens. But I do hope that we get some fresh voices in there. I think while it was great that he had enlisted so many women writers and producers to join that writing team, I would love to see some 20-something, 30-something women in there kind of mixing it up and making it fresh. Mm-hmm. Helena Andrews' piece in the Washington Post, I mean, her headline to me, like, nailed it in the head. It was like, Nola Darling 2.0 is as fresh as a flip phone. And I was like, (laughs) that is exactly right. Honestly, my thought is that, yes, we can say it's like, it doesn't necessarily feel as fresh as the show thinks it is. Um, But I like seeing, especially at a time now where we're seeing all of these men in Hollywood, these terrible people, and beyond Hollywood, who are being forced to atone for really bad things they've done behind the camera. And obviously, so we don't get, you know, Spike Lee has not been accused of doing anything inappropriate publicly, at least as far as I know. But he has been, as we you mentioned earlier, he has been known to have a woman problem. And I think that the fact that he went so far as to 
even though he directed every episode, he did enlist other women writers uh, to put the show together. His uh, his wife, Tanya Lewis-Lee, is involved and actually, I think, gave him the idea for the show in the first yep. place. Um, I, I see, even if it doesn't always land artistically, um, I see a filmmaker who is who is actually taking into account uh, his past work in a way that a lot of filmmakers don't do. I I enjoyed it, and I think that, especially if you didn't like the original or you had problems with the original, I think that almost a lot of people will enjoy the new one. I mean, I do think they're for sure redeeming. Like, he atoned for the rape scene that happened in the film and pivoting that towards this conversation about assault and harassment um just even street harassment like that's been kind of bubbling up for a while now those conversations and kind of pivoting it towards that did make it seem more of the now but to the point of the the freshness of it maybe it would have been better if they had made nola darling a bit older in the in the reboot i mean that would be radical like well not radical but like have yeah having her be in her 40s and have three lovers would be like that's I know it happens, but it's not as common as like a 20 something having three right. lovers. Yeah. I think I think I would have enjoyed that more. Well, Aaron, I'm glad we got to talk about this. It was awesome to have you on. Thanks for bringing me on. Yeah. Glad to be here. And everyone check out Aaron's piece on Mike.com. We'll leave a link to it in our show page. And where can folks follow you on Twitter? I am, media? I am on Twitter at Hey Aaron Evans. That's H-E-Y Aaron Evans. And on Instagram at the same handle. Awesome. With Kizik Can's free shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Up next, writer, director, and actor Greta Gerwig. So if you've already seen Lady Bird, there's a good chance you loved it and or felt the urge to call your mother as soon as it ended. And if you haven't, well, I highly suggest you check it out. Shirsa Ronan stars as the titular character, a precocious Sacramento teen who's desperate to escape her hometown and move to the East Coast for college where culture is. The film follows her senior year of high school from 2002 to 2003 and her evolving relationships with her best friend, her crushes, and her tough but loving mother, Marion, played by Laurie Metcalf. Last month, Gerwig and I talked about how she crafted the contentious mother-daughter bond at the center of the narrative, the current wave of -of coming-of-age films emerging from female filmmakers like herself, and how she prepared to step behind the camera for the first time. Check it out. I'm so glad we were able to make this happen. Welcome, Greta. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your your show. Yeah. And I have to say that I've now seen Lady Bird twice. And okay. it is, I'm just, I'm still processing it all. And oh, there's great. so much happening. And I really just really was moved by it in so many ways. And, and I found it so relatable. Oh. So I'm excited to talk to you about it. Thank you. Um, I mean, fans of yours and fans of Frances Ha, um, yes. uh, one of the movies you made a few years ago, mm-hmm. um, will remember that there's a, a sort of a montage or segment in which you go, your character goes back home to Sacramento. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so we now have this film, which I know you've said is not 
purely autobiographical. Sure. But it is set in Sacramento. Yeah. And it, it does, you know, come get some inspiration from your personal life. So can you talk a little bit about, like, why you chose Sacramento for the setting? And was the Francis Ha sort of montage a way for you to explore, like, this, the seeds of this idea into this further movie that you've made now? Yeah, sure. Uh, well... I, when we made the, the film Francis Ha, which I wrote, co-wrote with Noah Baumbach and he directed it, uh, I we had written a section where Francis goes home and we were talking about what that would be. And he said, well, let's make it Sacramento and because you know it and you know where, what we should shoot and what it should look like. And then he said, and why don't your parents play mm. your parents? And so then that kind of all, everything got you know, put into that section of the movie. And I'm I'm so glad it's in there. It, it was m- incredibly moving to shoot in Sacramento. And so many people said uh, they loved that section of the movie. And I think w- one thing that people responded to was they said, I loved that she went home and you saw that where she was from was a good place. Mm-hmm. It's not a story of like, home sucks. Um, yeah. And... And 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 I, I I had a I had a feeling of wanting to make a movie in Sacramento while I was there, but I was far away from writing the script. But I remember the cinematographer Sam Sam Levy, who also ended up shooting Lady Bird because I I loved him, I love him, and I was just like, wanted to work with him again. But he turned to me while we were in Sacramento for Francis and said, "I would love to shoot an entire feature here," which I think I stored. In, in the back of my head because I brought it up to him when I gave him the script and I mm-hmm. said remember that time you said that thing <laughs> that when, now's your chance yeah. um, but I, I I'm interested in cinema representing places that don't usually get representation I think cinema is one of the better documenters of place mm-hmm. and I think when I go to the movie theater and I see a world that I haven't known or haven't been part of, but it feels known intimately by the people who made it, there's something, it's like a visceral experience. You get it through the screen. And, and, I, and I think about places in, in America, which you think you know, that mm-hmm. you don't know. And um, in some ways, Sacramento could be any town. And in other ways, it it, it is this specific place, which is why it connects for people to their own lives, because they I think audiences can really breathe a certain amount of truth through the screen. And they know, even if they don't know the names of the places or why they're important, they sense that they are places and they are important. And I've always liked a bit of mystery in a way in movies and not overly defining everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so setting it in Sacramento was was a big part of r- writing it and starting to find the story. And it's not the only movie I want to make in Sacramento. I'd like to make more movies in Sacramento. I think it's a it's a place I know and I love. And I think you shoot things that are are close to you with more care and love than than you would a place that means nothing to you. Yeah, I I definitely think that comes across in just the specificity of the creation of Sacramento in this world. Like mm. I've never been to Sa- uh, Sacramento, but I, I felt like you said, I felt like I knew it. And mm. I also speaking to your point about the idea that it's, you like to see worlds that are very underrepresented. Mm. I think that was one of the things that stood up out to me about the film was the fact that, you know, 
so often when we see a movie like this that's made like for, for this budget that has like this kind of cast, mm-hmm. um, it tends to be set in New York. I mean, you've made lots sure. of those New York yeah. movies. It tends to be set in New York or maybe LA. Um, yeah. But like, there's a point at, I think at w- at which uh, Lady Bird says like that Sacramento is like the Midwest of <laughs> California or something along those yes. lines. Yes. And you know, I just thought that was. Uh, I liked it. I liked that that was, we're not seeing this. Yes, there are some rich, wealthy people, but there's there's so much other stuff going on there as well. Yeah, I'm really interested in how people live every everyday lives and and the art that is in those lives, even if they are not, quote unquote, artists, Mm -hmm. and um, particularly middle class lives and just people with jobs and careers that are have don't don't tend to get movies about them like nurses or mm-hmm. you know just people and I, I remember reading something by Mike Lee the British filmmaker who he he has a particular way that he works with his actors where he he does these extensive rehearsal process like improv rehearsals and he has an idea of who the characters are and he has uh, the actors improv with each other and it takes months and then he goes away and writes a script from the improv and then they come back together and then he has the script that he gives them, but it's all born out of these characters that he's created. And one of the requirements, I talked to an actor who who worked with him and she said, I was meant to bring in three different characters uh either of people I knew or things that I had made up and um, the only requirement was that they not have any job in the arts <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, when you look at his movies they they they, they don't mm-hmm. um, and I think he's had a kind of rigorous uh, commitment to that I mean that's not totally true as I'm saying that I'm thinking of there's uh, Topsy Turvy and there's Mr. Turner which are both oh, about artists right yeah but but when you think of like uh, you know, Happy Go Lucky, or mm-hmm. Vera Drake, or Another Year, or Naked. Um, it's a variety of different kinds of people, but they have different jobs. And different yeah. jobs are interesting. <laughs> I yeah, I totally, especially with the character Laurie Metcalf's character as the mother, mm-hmm. Marion. Um, you know, we do get a glimpse. We, I think, all the characters, even if they might be side characters, mm-hmm. they we still get a glimpse of like their lives and their inner selves. Yeah. And you know, there's a scene where she's you see her in her work mm-hmm. and she's mm-hmm. interacting with actually yeah. one of um, Lady Bird's teachers. Yeah, and. I, I just really, you could see that despite her always being, like, always butting heads with her daughter yeah. um, and sometimes being very acerbic and, and not as warm as one would maybe want their mother to be, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, she still, in her job, can be very oh, gentle yeah. and caring. Yeah. And, and there are moments she can be like that with Lady Bird, but she's not as yeah. necessarily forthcoming <laughs> right. as you would expect. Right. No, there's a, there's a couple moments with uh, Marion where she you see her to be actually this incredibly warm people person that people gravitate towards and like. And even in the first moment where she's she's signing out and she's walking with her coworker. Luis and he says you know and they she says thank god you were there you know and then she gives him this gift of um this little pink dress for his daughter and you're like oh she's really cued into the lives of people around her and and I mean I'm in particular with a relationship between Lady Bird and her mother I was interested in 
creating something where they couldn't show that affection to each other, even though they were capable of doing it to other people. Mm -hmm. So, or, or even doing it while the other one's conscious, like, like when Marion fixes the dress for Ladybird and hangs it up silently, and uh, the expression on Marion, played by Laurie Metcalf's face, always really gets me because it's these ways that we l- love each other and can't figure out to how exactly how to show it to someone and how easy that can be to do with coworkers, but how hard it can be to do with family. Yeah, it's like the closer you are to someone, the more. You want to nag them or push yeah. them away. Yeah. You, just, you don't always mean it, but like that's just the way it comes out. Totally. And also just, I mean, being a mother of a teenage girl who's about to go off into the world, I, I completely empathize with the feeling of, have I done my job well enough? Is this person ready for the world? Mm-hmm. Or is she just a total mess? And have I failed as a parent? Yeah. And, and I think that's... <sighs> That's a very understandable place to be as a mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, you yourself are not a mother, but like, how did you tap mm-hmm. into that in terms of, do you, did you recall what it was like to like be a young teenage girl? And mm-hmm. what, like, were you kind of looking back at it from the perspective of what your mother might have been or what other parents might have been around yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I've always been pretty good at or or at least wanted to be good at putting myself in uh, another person's position uh, that that I'd always I'd always think about what it would be to occupy somebody else's life and that I mean when I was young it was just riding my bike around my neighborhood and pretending to be the queen of England <laughs> but some version of like what would that actually feel like mm-hmm. um, and I think I as much as I clashed with my mother when I was a teenager I always had a sense of why she was doing what she was doing. And also now I'm in my 30s and I have a lot of friends who have kids and I've been around them and and they will say things to me like I sometimes I say things that I cannot believe is coming out of my mouth Mm -hmm. or that you'll say something that you've heard your parents say and now suddenly you're saying it and you're like, oh my God, I have, I've done it. (laughs) I have done it and I understand it. Yeah. And, um, I, I spent, I spent, I have nieces and nephews, my brother and my sister both have kids and, um, you know, just spent, after spending a full day with them. And then, um, I, I, I remember I went to sleep that night and I, I couldn't remember what I dreamed, but I woke up with this, I woke up with this sentence in my head, which was, oh my God, I understand the voice. And I was like, what, what do I mean? I understand the voice. And then I was thinking about it and I, I, I remember when I was little, I hated when when my mom and I would be in it or fighting and she'd pick up the phone and all of a sudden her voice would be really happy. And mm. she'd be like, she'd be, hello? Oh, Karen, it's so great that you called. And I'd be like, oh, my mom just changed her voice for Karen. <laughs> but then if you spend all day with little kids and then your friend calls, you're so happy. So much relief. <laughs> you're yeah. so happy. You're like, oh, my God, it's an adult. I can talk to an adult. <laughs> yeah. And I was like. Oh, I get the voice. Oh, yeah. the voice is totally understandable. Yeah. And like thinking about, you know, being with little kids and what that meant all day and just just looking for any any release. And um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. It was a combination of seeing that in my friends, experiencing it myself, and then always, I always sort of had an instinct to try to understand it, even if it was just selfishly for acting. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I would love to talk about the acting aspect because, you know, 
I, you've you've worked as an actor, you've worked as a as a writer, and all these other jobs behind the scenes. Yeah. And I know you've talked about. I think around the time of Francis Ha, you talked about the way in which you tried to make the scenes feel new every time. But like mm. you have this desire with whatever you do first, like the first impulse is the one that you like connect with the most. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like how did that did that translate at all into how you directed, like what sort of cues you took from your actors and how you directed them? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think so much of who I am as a director is is my experience as an actor and as a as a as a writer and producer and uh, other things I've done, because really th- those years became my film school. Those I didn't go to film school, so I I learned on set and I tried to keep my ears and eyes open to what was going on around me and and seek out mentors and people who would d- give me advice and tell me how they were lighting a shot and what what were we doing exactly, and I was very lucky to find those people and then. When when I got, got this cast, which is truly a phenomenal cast, mm-hmm. I mean, everyone, every every single actor is extraordinary. And I I had this intention when I wrote the script, and but I needed great actors to do it, that I wanted the audience to feel like they could follow any one character and there would be a whole movie there. And almost that you gave, got this quality of leaning forward for everybody because you'd think like, well, but what? what's that life? Wait, wait, I mean, who is that person really? And how did they get there? And then what was that decision? And, um, and I needed actors who could bring that sense of a complete life with, with a few brush strokes in a way and to really fill out the, the reality of that life. And something that I tried to do was give, I give actors as much information as I, as I possibly could. And I made lots of playlists and gave them books to read and Mm. talk to them about you know what I I thought was going on but also because I wrote it and was directing it I also had this deep sense of needing to pass on the 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 little candle of the character needed to go to them so as soon as I cast them I I almost symbolically was like I now I don't know I don't know. You know. You know the character better than I do, so now you start telling me. Because mm-hmm. I don't want you to ever feel like I'm looking over your shoulder and fixing your work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that so much of my job as a director is to create a, a, a safe, calm, free environment where people feel free to make mistakes and that I hold the perimeter and that I say that this this space, once we're rolling, once you're working – there are no wrong answers and 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 I want your biggest craziest idea mm-hmm. and 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 really allowing them to r- reveal to me what it is that I I was making and and that and that is because I, I feel like the best work actors do is when they feel empowered mm-hmm. was there any character in particular who uh, changed a lot from what you envisioned to what finally wound up on the screen? Well, I guess or surprised you maybe. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way they all did because once they're embodied by an actor, they stop being the thing in my head, and it's almost like, and I felt this with every single character. As soon as the actor started performing the roles, it was as if a third person had entered the room. And it wasn't me, and it wasn't them, and it was the character. And mm-hmm. and I st- I would get goosebumps, and I would know instantly. I mean, for the people who I, I for example, Laurie Metcalf, I just 
offered her the part because mm-hmm. she's a genius mm-hmm. and, and anyone in their right mind should work with Laurie Metcalf if they have a part and a chance. Um, and, but it was some, some people auditioned for me and I felt like the hairs on my arm stand up and I was like, oh, that's it. Mm-hmm. And, and it, and it, sometimes it was, sometimes it was, it was different, but it always felt exactly right. Mm. Yeah. Now you talked a little bit about, uh, um, was it Mike Lee, the director, yeah, yeah. but were there any other sort of influences that uh, inspired you for writing and creating this? Mm. Um, I mean, I think of now we have so many. Mm. In the last few years, we've seen quite a few films that center around like a coming of age story with a female mm. character directed mm. by a female director. Mm. Um, you know, we have Lady Bird, obviously, but yeah. also um, Edge of Seventeen, mm. uh, Pariah from a few years ago, um, yeah. Diary of a Teenage Girl. Right. And so we have all of these, but I feel like when you and I were close in age, yeah. like when we were growing up, I'm not sure I can think of any that really spoke in the way these movies are speaking. Yeah. Um, was there anything for you that you can recall that like maybe inspired you then or? Well, I, first of all, I want to say like th- those movies have all meant, uh, I mean, a-, a lot to me. And um, I I remember, you know, I, you know, when I want D. Reese Pariah, I was like, oh, great, good. This is great. Mm-hmm. This is great. Yeah. I've not seen this film ever before. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I felt the same way about um, Diary of a Teenage Girl. And um, Edge of Seen- 17 actually came out just after we had finished principal photography. And, I mean, I, for one, selfishly am so <laughs> pleased that these movies are being made because I'm mm-hmm. interested in young women occupying personhood. It's... It's something that I didn't see actually growing up. Um, uh, there were there were films that had some edge of it, but it didn't have the the fullness of it. I I felt like I was I was missing that. Um, I mean, I loved John Hughes movies. I, I mean, I loved Pretty in Pink. I love. Was there like a slight homage to Pretty in Pink in there with like because the, of the dress? hair and the dress? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I did. Okay. I, I did think of that. Yeah. I mean, something Sersh and I talked about a lot was like this idea of like, what is the movie playing in her head, which is not the movie that she's in. Mm-hmm. Like that, she would think that she is in the movie where she's going to find the quote unquote one. Yeah. And, and go to prom. And go to prom yeah. with her hot, hot boyfriend, who is the one. <laughs> which is you can totally empathize with that like viewpoint and especially if you grew up like I did watching m- movies where there was a one and yeah. and that was a big part of what it seemed like you were supposed to be doing as a young woman was looking for the one mm-hmm. um because that's like the structure of the universe that these films would set up. But um, yeah, definitely. I mean, of those movies, I would say Pretty in Pink is my favorite. There was a, an Australian movie I really loved, uh, Flirting. Oh, I haven't seen that uh, one. It's great. It features a very young Nicole Kidman and Tandy Newton. Oh. Um, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, about a, it's about a fancy boarding school in Australia and the kids who are on scholarships are other, otherwise ostracized. And it's... Um, it's very tender and it's very, it's very good. And, and that was, I remember that was kind of a big, it was a movie where I was like, oh, oh, you could do it, but it could be real. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I've never been to an Australian boarding school, I have no idea what that's, <laughs> whether that's real or not. But yeah, certainly I, 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 I think it's a very exciting time as a viewer to see these movies mm-hmm. because that's, I'm, 
I'm really interested in how's it been for you? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you also have talked about, and you were just mentioning earlier about how you have, you got a lot of train or I guess training instruction from people yeah. as you were working your way up to this. And you've said, you know, that you feel as though you've put in your 10,000 <laughs> hours, your Malcolm Gladwell uh, yeah. practice to get to where you are now. Um, but like, when I think about men, mm. especially young and up and coming male directors, yeah. like yeah. obviously this this translates to all industries, not just Hollywood. But right. like men tend to be, you know, they jump in even when they're not quote unquote ready, ready. Whereas women seem to think they need to be ready. <laughs> That's right. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? And like, do you feel as though that was something you were consciously doing, or did it just feel like at this time this was the right time to do it? Like, do you feel as though you were saying to yourself? I'm not ready yet to make this. Well, I would say I I decide when I decided to make this movie, I guess I was in I'd been working on the script 2014 2013 2014 by 2015 I was I was trying to get pr producers on and raise money and figure out how to make it. And looking back, I I probably could have jumped in sooner. But I didn't have a script that I felt was ready and I I felt like I wanted to be sure of myself. And I don't regret any of the time that I spent. I mean, it was enormously useful all of the time that I spent working with different directors. I do think it's notable that I, I worked with um, the filmmaker Rebecca Miller mm -hmm. and I worked with her right before I s kicked into high gear on trying to get this film made. And I don't think that's an accident. It wasn't conscious in terms of saying, Oh, uh, now I've worked with a female director and now I must really do this. But it's the timeline is so close that you're like, well, clearly there's a connection here that I had worked with her and there was something I'd worked with other female directors, but I think for whatever reason, I was ready to hear it at that moment and, and seeing her on set and that she'd written and directed this. I think it was something that was a leading by example that I really responded to. Which film were you working on? With I, I worked or, on Maggie's Plan with her. Ah, right. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. And she and she's, you know, I, I've, I, I just adore her and we're very good friends now. But um, was there something she said in particular or just watching her the way she directed that sort of might have kicked something or sparked something or? She, I just I, I spent a lot of time with her because I was uh, the one of the leads in the film and mm -hmm. we had a lot of time to prepare and just watching how she moved through the world and uh, took control and commanded respect, but without ever trying to not be a woman. I, I, there was something about that that I, I, I had a, you know, a professional crush on her mm -hmm. and uh, I, I started to dress like her, as you do with people you really like. Yeah. And um, I, there was, I, I, she's a mother. She has uh, two sons and a stepson, and she's um, she's an incredible writer and thinker and filmmaker. And just being around her and seeing her occupy all these roles, but I, but 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 doing so not effortlessly because it is so much effort. But doing so with so much um, grace and humor and and 
that thing I think you you recognize in another person when they they really have accessed um they have the their power within not power over mm-hmm. it's just emanating from them and they're not looking to put it on other people they just have it inside them and that was very inspiring to see but this need to to feel like you're perfect before you do anything and the thing just to go back to what you were saying before that that worries me about that with women is is this not wanting to speak up if you don't understand something because then you'll never learn it right and right. that that's the thing particularly with filmmaking because it is such a long process to take something from the page all the way through to it being released and if you can't say wait i don't i don't understand what are we doing now mm-hmm. <laughs> like and and you're not in an environment where you feel like that's safe or that will be accepted or you know that that would prevent certain women from from learning what they need to learn or, or moving forward because they're so scared to say that they don't know because they're so worried they're going to get kicked off or told that they don't right. they don't know or like see she doesn't know what she's doing and so i think i i've talked to um all of my particularly younger actress friends who've expressed some inclination to direct and they say could i come shadow you it's like come please Mm -hmm. all of you come ask me all the questions and 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 find the people who will never make you feel stupid Mm -hmm. i mean that is the thing right like i feel like more than anything women need not only women but other women but also men to just like not put them down or make them feel as though they yeah. can't say what they want to say. Yeah. Because if you, especially if you want to be director, like you're, that's yeah. what you're doing. You are supposed to call the shots. Yeah. And yeah. definitely. I wonder even like in radio and podcasting, I'm sure that there can be a technical aspect to it where a guy could make you feel little if you didn't understand something or you didn't understand a particular soundboard and you were like, oh, yeah. Oh, I, God, where do I plug this in? Mm-hmm. And I could imagine a guy looking like you don't know where. To do. <laughs> it, I have lots of uh, female friends in in podcasting and radio and, and even just like in in media in general, whether yeah. it's like as an editor or writer, like that is very much a thing that happens. And it's it's it seems I don't even think a lot of the times the men necessarily even notice that they're doing it or yeah, notice how yeah. the woman might take that. Yeah. Um, but I feel like hopefully more and more of them are becoming aware of the little yeah. the little slights. That the can little happen. slights. You know, I had a, a great cinematographer I got to work with as an actor who sadly has passed away. Um, his name was Harris Savitas, and he was a true, true artist and a, just a prince of a man. And I told him towards the end of working together, I think it was even at the rap party, I said I was interested in directing. And he, and I was asking him about some shot or about lighting. And he said, well, I could explain the whole thing. And I will, I'll explain the shot to you. He's like, but most people, when they talk about technical things, they're just trying to make you feel small. They're mm-hmm. not actually teaching you anything. He's like, so I'm going to tell you how I did this shot, but it's... Just know that really as a director, you should just be able to explain in in any terms that feel comfortable to you what you're looking for from your DP. And if they throw jargon back at you, they're bad. <laughs> and I was like, thanks, Harris. That's, that's great advice. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was like, all right, if they throw jargon back at me, that, that then that's not the person I, I should be working with. That's great. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he was – but I felt like there was – I had I had some good people say the right things at the right moments. Mm. My final question to you, mm. uh, which is what I ask all of my guests on the mm. show, is 
When is the last time you saw a film or TV show or a character or a scene or a moment on screen that you weren't directly involved with mm. uh, where you felt as though you saw yourself or you felt represented? Oh, um, I think in uh, Guillermo del Toro's new movie, Shape of Water. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, I'm very much it's looking forward so to it. It's so beautiful. And there's a moment when I might start crying when I talk about it because it was so beautiful. There's a moment when uh, I don't want to give anything away about it because I know, but well, you um, can talk a little bit about the just the character dynamic, sure. or whatever it made you feel. Well, there was a there's a there's a I don't know a mermaid mermaid merman. It looks like a merman or a creature uh, a, from the black a lagoon. fish man. Yeah, a fish man merman <laughs> um, who's very beautiful, but you know he's being held. Because it's this particular moment in the middle of the Cold War and, and he's being sort of studied and researched. And um, Sally Hawkins, who I just, I think she's one of my favorite actresses. And she plays a character who's a cleaning lady at the at the facility. She's at, uh, at the janitorial staff and she, and anyway, she she's mute. So she doesn't speak the whole movie. She signs, um, but she... They, she falls in love with him. Anyway, there's this moment where they're embracing and her neighbor opens the door and sees them and she's naked and she's with her fish man. <laughs> and she just looks across his shoulder at her neighbor who's played by Richard Jenkins. And the look on her face is just... It's a person in love who's like, I am unshameable. Mm. <laughs> I'm with my fish man. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was in its sexy without being uh, smutty? graphic yeah. or smutty, and it's not. It, it just is like just the look on her face is like, I, you can't touch me. And it it's, sounds, it's like it's you like you just can't. You're like ah oh, yes. That sounds so Guillermo del Toro. Like yeah. that's his. He's so good at making even like the most quote, quote unquote grotesque yeah. things seem very oh, lovely and lovely beautiful. and beautiful. He's also I one of the my great pleasures of having a movie out in the fall. And uh, I've gotten to meet so many great filmmakers. I mean, Angelina Jolie and Dee Reese and Maggie Betts and Valerie Ferris and all these, you know, really incredible uh, female filmmakers. And then also people like Guillermo del Toro, who, who is just, it's mm -hmm. just, he's the most lovely human being. And just so, um, I admire his filmmaking so much. And also he's just a, when you meet him, you're like, of course you make these movies. Mm -hmm. You're, you're just wonderful. And, um, anyway, that moment in that movie, I just, tears were just <laughs> streaming <laughs> down my face uncontrollably. Aww. Yeah. That's a great moment. I can't wait to check it out. Oh God, you're going to love it. You're just going to love it. <laughs> you never knew you needed a love story between a fish <laughs> man and a woman who doesn't speak, but you do. <laughs> you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Greta. Thank it, you. It was an absolute pleasure. And thank you for making Ladybird. Thanks for having me mm -hmm. and making your show. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. 
Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. And that's all. You'll find links to everything we discussed on our show page, and you can find Ladyberg playing in select theaters, and she's got to have it on Netflix. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Marilyn Williams. Our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And don't forget to follow us on our Facebook page, Slate Represent, where you'll find even more relevant content pertaining to representation in Hollywood. Until next time. Until next time.